The solution to the violence and instability we see in Afghanistan is just to the east of its border in Pakistan. This is Brief Before Impact. Welcome everyone, I am your host Matt Parker. When reading about complex geopolitical issues, it quickly becomes clear that there's always more forces at play than what appears on the surface. Each actor in a given situation has its goals to achieve, and each of those goals has a second and third order effect. And now this is most certainly true in the ongoing developments in Afghanistan as America has withdrawn its troops. Now much of the focus when discussing Afghanistan, just surrounds the Taliban's control over the majority of the country and the potential threat of terrorist groups operating inside its borders. However, the influence of Pakistan that has over the Taliban is substantial, and American citizens need to understand how our political leaders can push Pakistan to help change the current situation. But to evaluate our options... Let me outline the levers that we can push and pull to affect change on the ground in Afghanistan. Before we get into those details, I'll just take a quick app break, so stick with me for 60 seconds as I outline this multifaceted situation. Now, welcome back, everyone. In the early days after 9-11, you know, we thought Pakistan was an ally. The reality is they were not. We were concerned about their nuclear weapons and believed that we could spend enough money and give enough aid that they would keep control of their nukes and also deny safe haven to the Taliban and to Al-Qaeda. Instead, years later, we found Osama bin Laden living in a large home just down the street from the military academy in Pakistan. And the Taliban enjoyed nearly unfettered safe haven in Pakistan, you know, just through its mountainous western territories. They were, in effect, an arm of Pakistan's intelligence services. Now, our strategy was overtly and overly focused on Afghanistan. We never did fully implement a strategy that included Pakistan and even by necessity India for that matter. Now, the difficult lesson to learn has kept the Taliban afloat for so many years. And now that Pakistan faces an international dilemma of supporting the Taliban, first, How does it construct a credible government and secure an international legitimacy for it? For example, C. Raja Mohan for the Indian Express writes, After decades of covert support to the Taliban, Pakistan has now come out into the open by carrying the Taliban on its political shoulders. Rawal Pindi is telling the world that the Taliban has changed and means no harm to anyone. It has promised that Taliban goodies from the rest of the world quickly. Pakistan can surely reap many rewards if it can manage this high-wire act. Now, like in all high-risk gambles, the potential for failure is large. If the Taliban does not measure up, or does measure up to the international demands, it would no longer be the political beast that we have known. For the Taliban, which is so deeply committed to a vigorous religious ideology, a significant internal and external reorientation will be wrenching and divisive. So, Pakistan is in a precarious position. It has propped up a government formation in the Taliban, which has yet to convey to the international community its 
capable of both maintaining stability in Afghanistan and also denying safe havens to terrorist groups, both of which Pakistan would benefit from. Now, there are many reasons why Pakistanis should be deeply concerned about the Taliban ascendancy in Afghanistan. But perhaps the two most important reasons are, in equal parts, existential and urgent. This is according to GOTV. One, the Taliban's ascendancy, it will generate a global and a local assertion of the possibility of anti-republic, anti-modern political takeover of countries as an expression of people's Muslim identity. Whether it's schoolyards in Texas to UNESCO heritage sites in Timbuktu, all these young Muslims, they're going to be drawn to the symbolism of a ragtag assemblage of pious and simple fighters taking down the mighty United States, the largest, most awesome military force ever assembled in human history. These narratives are not new, and they were not unique to Muslims. In fact, the seeds of these narratives were sown in the same place where they will be reaped today some 40 years ago, when the U.S. sought to empower and enable the grandfathers, the uncles, and fathers of the very Taliban that are are taking over Afghanistan today to take down the Soviet Union 40 years ago. Now, Americans do not like being reminded of that point of history, but that should not stop Pakistanis from knowing it. The problem is what comes next. And this is the second issue. The Taliban's ascendancy will generate a new and unprecedented counterterrorism challenge for Pakistan, the likes of which seems not to have been conceived of or discussed or even planned for by those in the Islamic Republic of Pakistan and that have been entrusted with the work of shaping and delivering Pakistan's message to its own people and to the world. You know, consider Al-Qaeda, Daesh, uh, Tariq Taliban Pakistan, or TTP, and a whole variety of smaller splinter groups, as well as the residual you know, escapee and back-end networks of groups banned in Pakistan. It may or may not be friendly to the Doashura and of the Taliban, but they have a love affair with ungoverned spaces. And this is really the key issue that's defining America's counterterrorism fight is where the ungoverned spaces exist. And Afghanistan under the Taliban is going to have more ungoverned space than it was under the U.S. occupation. So if the case can be made, that Pakistan is in a position to significantly influence the Taliban and will benefit the most from a stable Afghanistan free of terrorist groups operating across the borders into Pakistan, then how can the United States encourage its government leaders to promote certain behaviors in the Taliban's ranks? And we can first start with the billions of dollars in foreign aid that we have given to Pakistan over the several years. According to the State Department, the people of Pakistan and the United States share a fundamental desire for stability, for hope and peace, and support for regional and global economic development. So to achieve that vision, U.S. civilian assistance to Pakistan has delivered real results on the issues most important to all Pakistanis, whether it's energy, stability, education, health, and economic growth. Since 2009, the U.S. government has committed over $5 billion, since billion with a B, in civilian assistance to Pakistan and over $1 billion in emergency humanitarian response. 
During Pakistan's 2019 and 2020 fiscal year, the United States was once again the top donor country to Pakistan of on-budget and grant-based assistance. U.S. assistance to Pakistan is always in the form of grants, which does not add to Pakistan's debt burden or balance of payments challenges. Now, this commitment reflects the United States' belief that if Pakistan is secure and peaceful and prosperous, that's not only good for Pakistan, it's good for the region, and it's good for the world. A stable, prosperous, and democratic Pakistan that plays a constructive role in the region will remain in the long-term U.S. national interest. So, the U.S. is spending a lot of money in Pakistan to keep it stable. That's kind of the bottom line. Now, this stability is intended to directly benefit the fight against terrorism and also, by a larger geostrategic effect, keep tensions to just a simmer between a nuclear Pakistan and nuclear India. Now, the issue with any foreign aid package, it's not the dollar amount sent necessarily, but rather the effectiveness of the deployment of that cash. Now, many countries that the U.S. supports with foreign aid are known for their internal corruption and, and incompetence. And certainly Pakistan falls in that category as well. Peter Tankio, it's an independent analyst, and he actually created the Global Strategy Asia Think Tank. He articulates this issue in the following way with regards to foreign aid. He writes that foreign aid has a long track record. The biggest upside appears to be the injection of large sums of money into developing countries, otherwise gripped by poverty, war, and conflict. For better or worse, that money should, in theory, improve lives and raise people out of poverty, leading to sustainable growth and development. The unfortunate truth, however, is that foreign aid has often presented more challenges than opportunities to aid recipients. In these 60-plus years, aid has been mandated by the government versus just relying solely on private donations. We've seen small improvements across the globe from reducing poverty to slowing population growth or to curing or preventing diseases. Progress that otherwise would have been absent without an outpouring of foreign support. Now, however, the impact from aid has not been proportionate to the amount of money donated. Foreign aid's biggest downside is that no clear effective system has been put in place to hold aid recipients and their governments accountable for resources legally taken from public sector coffers. A long-standing and still very present trend from Asia to Africa, Latin America, and Europe. Now, fortunately, the absence of that system reinforces social inequities and perpetuates cycles of political abuse that has led to a sophisticated new form of authoritarianism, one that empowers the elite few while keeping a majority of people in abject poverty. So if we're paying Pakistan billions of dollars, it's safe to assume that the U.S. has expectations of how Pakistan manages its relationship with Afghanistan government as well as the Taliban. If the Taliban are not or are now essentially the you know, acting government, the influence of Pakistan, it's even more critical. And the reality is this war, the global war on terrorism, it, it's not over. This war has no timeline, 
and does not end with the U.S. pulling out of Afghanistan. Individuals who are Islamic radicals and have seen the American pullout of Afghanistan, they're seeing an opportunity. The chaos and disorder will most likely inspire the kind of validation in their ideology and perhaps even spur them into further action. Now, as far as Pakistan is concerned, its political and military leadership, they've, they vehemently deny supporting the Taliban. They've done this for a long time. And nonetheless, it should be noted that the Taliban have found refuge in Pakistan over the last two decades. Here's an example. 2016, uh, gentleman Sartaj Aziz, he was then the prime minister's advisor on foreign affairs, accepted that Pakistan hosted the Taliban leadership. If Pakistan could embrace the Taliban, even in the presence of the Western coalition forces, I, I believe it's unwise to assume that Pakistan will suddenly maintain distance from the Taliban after the U.S. withdrawal. Take a listen to this clip. It's discussing why Pakistan gives sanctuary to groups like the Taliban. There are key aspects of the country that still sort of support kind of an extremist framework. But I think the key to note is that the Pakistani state, and especially the Pakistani military, has supported this extremist framework because it thinks that it's in its strategic benefit to do so. It's not that it's some ideological thing. The Pakistani military um, gives sanctuary to militant groups that attack India because it helps them keep India at bay. Sanctuary to militant groups that attack Afghanistan because, again, it helps them achieve some semblance of control in Afghanistan. Unless those two things change, you know, the military's support for non-state militant groups and the roots of extremism in the country, Pakistan still remains uh, a concerning place. So based on that assessment, Pakistan is operating in its long-term regional and strategic interest rather than just pure ideological interest. And this is an important distinction because I believe Pakistan, I think it is the lever that America needs to be pulling to propagate a desired result with the Taliban. And Pakistan has the most skin in this game, frankly, when it's regarding counterterrorism in Afghanistan. So it's really important that we grasp all the international players just seeking to operate in Afghanistan and, more importantly, evaluate their motives. So though I mentioned Pakistan has substantial influence over the events in Afghanistan, I wanted to also highlight that both India and China have stakes in that territory as well. Now, starting with India, and this is according to Yunsun for War on the Rocks, India's goal in Afghanistan is to mitigate the strategic influence of Pakistan there so that it can't be used as a safe haven for anti-India terrorist groups, including those that attacked Indian diplomatic missions in the past. As a result, India has opposed the Taliban, seeing it as, as Pakistan's proxy in Afghanistan. India has also attempted to turn Afghanistan into an access corridor to Central Asia in an effort to circumvent the out and outflank Pakistan. And that includes by financing the Chabahar Porta in Iran near the Afghan border. However, the strategic value of Afghanistan, at least for India, it's predicated on the presence 
of the U.S. military in the country. Now, with the pending American withdrawal, and now that's a conclusion, India's strategic investment looks to be largely kind of sunk lost. The United States has identified South Asia as the epicenter of terrorism and religious extremism, and therefore it has an interest in ensuring global and re, excuse me regional stability, and that prevents nuclear weapons proliferation, and minimizing that potential of a nuclear war between India and Pakistan. Now, moving and pivoting to China, thinking about this, just within hours of the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan. A Chinese foreign ministry spokeswoman indicated that Beijing was ready for, quote, friendly cooperation with Afghanistan. And that followed a July meeting between the um, Chinese foreign minister and the Taliban delegation. So essentially, President Xi's endgame here, it's quite simple. He envisions Afghanistan fitting neatly into his regime's Sweeping Belt and Road Initiative. You've heard me talk about this initiative on previous episodes. And that's just a multi-continent infrastructure plan that offers smaller smaller nations from Central Asia all the way to the Horn of Africa and Eastern Europe just the development and exchange for Chinese domination. China's fundamental interest in Afghanistan is stability. That's it. And the chaos in Afghanistan, at least from Beijing's perspective, stokes Islamic fundamentalism that threatens domestic security in China. That's particularly in Xinjiang. It's a province in China. If anything, China is not a revisionist power in Afghanistan. Given the choice, China would prefer to see an Afghanistan with internal stability and a functional government that is preferably but not necessarily neutral among great powers. Having witnessed the quagmire in which Britain, the Soviet Union, and the United States were each entrapped, China has always been convinced that Afghanistan is just the graveyard of empires. Traditionally, Beijing believed that it should avoid serious entanglement in Afghan affairs at all costs. So China's overall view of the U.S. presence in Afghanistan, it's a mixture of conflicting factors. On the negative side, China saw the invasion of the United States establishing a foothold in the heart of the Eurasian continent that could be used to contain China. Beijing views the ongoing war with the Taliban as the United States irresponsibly destabilizing the country and rattling the region. From the Chinese perspective, 9-11 and the ensuing war in Afghanistan fostered the radicalization of Muslims in the region and directly contributed to the unrest in China's northwest Xinjiang Uyghur autonomous region. But, on a positive side, the Chinese have viewed America's wars since 9-11 as the best thing that has happened to China since the end of the Cold War. It's a window of strategic opportunity that gave Beijing a decade to build its strength while Washington was distracted, bogged down, and spent trillions of dollars in Afghanistan and Iraq. While the United States needed China's nominal support for its war on terror, China played up the terrorist threats in Xinjiang using the global war on terror to justify its policy in the Uyghur region. For China, India's failure means Pakistan's victory. With the American exit, Pakistan is believed to have significantly more influence over event Af- in the events in Afghanistan. And it's effectively alleviating its strategic vulnerability of being encircled by a hostile Afghanistan to the north and a hostile India to the south. 
So the enhancement of Pakistan's role in Afghanistan will not indirectly contribute to China's influence, but also potentially improve the negotiation positions of both Islamabad and Beijing vis-a-vis Washington. Now, although China bears a negative and pessimistic view over the internal peace and stability of Afghanistan following the peace of the deal, there are some more you know, kind of silver linings in terms of geo- regional geopolitics. And this is one point I wanted to present to you this evening. There's a, a journalist I recommend to anyone who's looking for an objective opinion. Uh, Laura Logan, you may, have, you may be familiar with her, a South African television and radio journalist and a war correspondent. Um, worked for CBS News for 16 years. Now in January 2020, she joined Fox Nation. And in my view, she'll give a non-ideological assessment on geopolitical issues. So in this following clip, she lays out the case against Pakistan and as well as the consequences of recognizing the Taliban as the legitimate government in Afghanistan. Take a listen. You know what we're not talking about, Martha? The United States military and this administration knew that for months foreign fighters were flooding into Pakistan and over the border. Why are we not talking about sanctions on Pakistan? Pakistan controls the Taliban and the Haqqani network. The, the leadership is based there, right? So they, they don't do anything without Pakistan. So why, didn't, why aren't we asking Pakistan for answers? If we really didn't know this was happening, which you know no one with any credibility believes for a second, right? Why aren't we asking Pakistan to stop it? You know, if you wanted to secure Kabul, if you didn't want those Marines to die, you just had to take charge. Why did we cede control to the Taliban in the first place? You didn't need to make a deal with them to withdraw. You could have just withdrawn. But what you need to do, really, what Congress needs to pay attention to is not recognizing the Islamic Emirate of the Taliban, which will lead to the Islamic Emirates of Libya and Yemen and everywhere else. This is the caliphate. This is the political heart of the caliphate. May not be the violent ISIS al caliphate, but believe me, this is still the greatest victory in their history since they began. So let's consider the following. First, Pakistan, it's a nuclear weapons state. Second, all of the country's Pakistan borders are consequential for the United States. And third, despite its significant political and economic difficulties, Pakistan has a growing technology sector. Its economy is growing its reach. And I wanted to present to you the most likeliest and most dangerous courses of actions with these points in mind. So in my assessment, the most likeliest course of action the United States will engage in with Pakistan will be in the following ways. We will cooperate on any humanitarian crisis that comes out of Afghanistan. Most likely we will create, whether it's a working group or an exchange, to fight back against developing counter-terrorist operations in Afghanistan. And lastly, we will always try to enhance the dialogue between India and Pakistan over any territorial disputes. Now, for the most dangerous course of action the United States could take, in my assessment, it would be to ignore the deepening China and Pakistan relationship and continue to use carrot-and-stick tactics as leverage on Pakistan if we fail to utilize these economic instruments to enhance regional stability and the national security over Pakistan. So, last item I just want to conclude with this evening is the idea of Getting buy-in from a person's support of who you need on a, any political issue, 
this is specifically applied to tonight's episode, but I think we can present this more broadly to any political issue we're looking at or discussing. For example, a sport coach, he can get buy-in from his athletes by emphasizing how an individual's efforts can affect the outcome of the entire team, right? Here's what America's leaders need to do. They need to improve on getting buy-in from American citizens on foreign policy issues. And that especially includes the war on terror. On September 10th, 2001, the United States was not as at war as far as it knew. But there were radical Islamic terrorists who were at war with the United States. There was no doubt in their minds. So this particular war has no end date. There are no conditions-based surrender. It will always exist so long as America exists and radical ideologies exist. Therefore, America's leaders have to lead. They need to tell folks this fight isn't going away no matter how much we try wishing it away. No matter how much America isolates itself from the world, evil will always knock at our door. And as citizens, we have to have the courage to hear this truthful yet challenging message. And we need political leaders that have the will to tell that hard truth and take an unpopular path. So thanks for tuning in this week. If you have a minute, uh, review any of my episodes on your podcast app of preference. That really helps me grow. So I certainly appreciate that. Uh, You can follow me on Instagram at brief before impact. As always, I hope you're picking up what I'm putting down. I am Matt Parker. This is brief before impact.